You're listening to Pod Wars with Gary and Justice. Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we'd like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. Speaking of little nuggets, I'm here with your good friend, Justice. What's up, guys? Little little nugget, though? I mean, take the compliment, man. That's the same kind of adjective I use for Baby Yoda, and I just use that for you. Okay, that means a lot. It means a lot. Speaking of Baby Yoda, my mom was awesome and visited me this past weekend and she got me a baby Yoda mask and it's just him sipping tea. It's awesome. That's amazing. (laughs) But anyways, guys, we have a great interview coming up here with Jason Sorrell. And before we get into that, we got some Twitter tidbits. Live from the Pod Nation, we bring you Twitter so bro we are really thankful we had a lot of followers at us on twitter over the last weekend thank you so much guys we can only shout out a few but i'm just going to throw out there a few names of our new favorite friends we have at at dad underscore dragons at retro game search at Ahoy Comics Mags, I appreciate anyone who uses the word Ahoy. At Sup Spider Talk, at Run With Skizzers, I appreciate that name as well. At Talk Star Wars, at Mitch Geralds, and a great comic creator that we really admire, at Frank Thierry. Thank you guys so much for the follow. Yeah, we really appreciate it. We hope uh, you guys are checking out our stuff. We're checking out yours. Um, and... I really, really am excited for you guys to listen to this interview. It's super cool. And, you know, just get to hear how, you know, parks and rides at Disney and Universal are created. Uh, So sit back and enjoy. Hey, guys. Today, we're really excited to have Jason Sorrell on the podcast. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So Jason's been involved in a lot of different areas of not only geeky media, but Disney, Universal, a lot of just media we love. He's a former Imagineer. He's worked on a lot of different areas within the field of Imagineering. And has also basically written the book on Imagineering for certain projects, such as The Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, as well as The Art of the Avengers as well. But to start out, Jason, we like to, since we are primarily our bread and butter is Star Wars and Marvel, we'd like to hear what is your favorite Star Wars movie and why? Well, I mean, I know it's a cliche to answer, but I I have no other answer, and that's The Empire Strikes Back. You know, I'm a a child of the original trilogy. I was 7, 8, and 13 when the original trilogy came out, so I was really in the sweet spot for those films, along with the Indiana Jones movies, where you think I was 11... 14 and 19. So really, you know, the films of both Lucas and Spielberg uh, had a great deal of influence on me, uh, how I grew up and ultimately what I would want to do for a living. But uh, being in the sweet spot of Star Wars, uh, there's nothing quite like, I mean, just imagine being a 10 year old the summer of 1980 when Empire Strikes Back came out, you know, like Vader's Luke's father and, you know, you're 10 years old and your mind is melting and oozing out of your ears. So uh, that that has stuck with me. And uh, 
while I'm actually, um, and I know we get into you know issues of toxic fandom here, I'm actually a fan of all three eras of Star Wars filmmaking. I think each one of them has uh, uh, any number of great things uh, about them to to make them. Uh, what they are, but you know, I'll always be a child of the originals, and Empire to me is the pinnacle of the original trilogy. And I love that you're uh, showing some love to all eras here, because I mean, we grew up around the prequel area, and those have obviously received a lot of flack. But I think that all eras have had a lot to love. Absolutely, and here's the thing: it, it's like, uh, and obviously, my uh, perspective might be a little bit different. Being a creative person, being a storyteller, I'm obviously uh, automatically on the side of George, meaning this belongs to him. This is his story. And ultimately, when it was released in the world, it becomes the property of the audience and the fans as well. But as the creator, as the maker, you know, so to speak, uh, he ultimately gets the final say on what that story is. So the prequels, for example, say what you will about them. Uh, it, it's brilliant storytelling and world building and um, and again, uh, I just think that it sort of masterfully sets up the original trilogy. And then when you start to get into things like Dave Filoni's Clone Wars, which he did you know, in partnership with George, uh, there's a lot of amazing storytelling going on in that era. Uh, the characters, I think, by virtue of the you know hundreds of hours that you get with multiple seasons, seasons of an animated series, uh, those characters just developed a richness that they never could have had otherwise. So, you know, I think that there's a lot to love in the prequel series. And again, he was advancing the entire art form, you know, technically with what he was doing with ILM and uh, digital sets and, and uh, shooting uh, digitally, you know, as opposed to film. So, you know, he gets a lot of uh, flack for the uh, prequels that I think is um, unearned. You know, there, there's a lot to love there. And I think he will be looked at as a true patron of the arts, in addition to being a masterful storyteller, just in terms of what he did to advance the art form, given that now virtually everything, unless you're Christopher Nolan, is as opposed to on film. So, um, and I've had the privilege of, of uh, spending time at the ranch and pitching to him personally for things that I was involved with with Disney. Uh, so you won't hear a bad word about George Lucas from this middle-aged bald man. So um, I'm, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on like the new Star Wars stuff, like the sequel trilogy and Mandalorian and even Rebels? Well, it, it's interesting because when, you know, in, in 2015, try to picture you know, a 45-year-old guy or, or just in general, Generation X folks sitting down in the theater uh, for a film that we really thought we would never get. You know, because I was seven years old reading Starlog and we can explain to everyone what a magazine is. You know, it was actually printed on paper and you had to go buy it. <laughs> and you had to wait for, uh, for information to come to you. Um, but, you know, George had always talked about uh, uh, nine films or 12 films. You know, it, it, it kind of, uh, went back and forth over the years. But, you know, in 2015, as a 45-year-old guy with a wife and kids, I'm sitting down to something that I thought I would never get, and that was Star Wars Episode Seven. And like any fan, I have my own likes and dislikes and my own issues with the sequel trilogy. But to be totally honest, um, as a fan, any extra moments that I get to spend with Han, Luke, and Leia that I wouldn't have had otherwise is gravy. You know, that's icing on the cake. 
And um, there are a lot of things that I love about the sequel trilogy. There are certain things that I disagree with. I actually happen to be an admirer of The Last Jedi. Mm. Uh, even if uh, Ryan Johnson made choices that I didn't necessarily agree with, and there are things that I would have preferred to see go differently, here's the thing, and, and this is interesting to, to ask of a, of a middle-aged fan you know, who grew up with the originals. There is no way you can knock that guy for not taking big swings and trying to do something different. It reminded me in many ways of Temple of Doom, which also gets a lot of crap, you know, from, or it has gotten a lot of crap from people over the years. But I remember as a 14 year old, even then as a teenager, going into that movie thinking, hey, this is nothing like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I love that, you know, say what you will about, you know, putting your, your hands into people's chests and ripping out hearts. Those guys did something completely different and unlike anything the audience was expecting. And to this day, Temple of Doom remains one of my favorite movies, you know, and uh, it's almost up there with Raiders. And the only reason it, it isn't is because Raiders is a perfect film, like Jaws, <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back, yeah. you know, so, so many of those. So The Last Jedi, it's like, yeah, I don't really agree with what he did with Snoke, what he did with Luke, but you, as a storyteller and as a creator myself, I have to give Ryan Johnson props for taking some big swings and trying to do something different because that takes balls, honestly. Especially with a franchise that that big of clout to have the cojones to actually do that kind of jump is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you guys were asking about The Mandalorian and I feel like like everybody else on the planet right now, I am a huge fan of The Mandalorian and I think uh, most Star Wars fans, especially middle-aged fans my age, you know, who grew up with the uh, original trilogy, you know, we should be down on our knees thanking God that people like John Favreau and Dave Filoni are in the positions they're in because they truly understand Star Wars, the, uh, the world building that George did, the characters, the overall mythology. Um, and you can see that in The Mandalorian in that it feels like Star Wars. It, it, it fits in nicely with the original trilogy and sort of takes the storytelling in a new era and a new direction. And I'm really excited about the next couple of years here and the uh, subsequent seasons of the Mandalorian where we, where those two guys are going to get to fill in the gaps between return of the Jedi and the force awakens. And after spending a lot of time with Dave Filoni, uh, both producing shows for star Wars weekends uh, at Walt Disney world in Florida and uh, spending times, time with him at Big Rock and uh, out at the ranch, you know, you come away from any interaction with him like, oh, holy shit, I just sat with Yoda on Dagobah. You know, and it's interesting because that's how he feels about the time that he got to spend with George making the Clone Wars. And uh, all I can tell you is that the, the, the mythology is in good hands. I don't even want to say the franchise. It's such a commercial term. But those guys know Star Wars, and I think they're going to be great stewards of Star Wars as we move forward into the future here. And I do appreciate your viewpoint of loving on Dave Filoni's extra work too, because I feel like that's something that's lost a lot with the original trilogy fans. Of uh, like Our generation loves that work, but the original trilogy fans still haven't quite connected with it yet. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Dave is kind of a, <clears throat> a goodwill ambassador between Star Wars past and Star Wars future. And uh, again, having spent you know a good amount of time with him, hearing his philosophy on what the galaxy is and what these characters are and what George's intention intentions were 
you know, for for this um, epic piece of storytelling, uh, you know, he's we're, we're in good hands, and I, I think you're going to see that not only in the Mandalorian, but hopefully there's going to be a creative ripple effect across the rest of the, of the Disney Plus series. Because um, if uh, if the pandemic has taught us one thing or showed us one thing, it's that uh, a good deal of the future is going to be on television, on our screens, you know, on streaming platforms. And um, if uh, if Star Wars is any indication, I think that's incredibly exciting. You know, with Obi Wan, with the the Rogue One, the the Cassian Andor uh, series, and I, I feel like every time I log onto my computer, I'm hearing rumors of another Star Wars Disney Plus series. But frankly, if it's anything, if they're anything like The Mandalorian, you know that that's good news for all of us. Yeah, I love like some. I love The Mandalorian, but I also really like that behind the scenes Rogue Gallery that they had on Disney Plus, where there you have uh, Dave Filoni and he's just talking about Star Wars and his love for it and like the way that he describes things. It's it's mind blowing and it, it's it's super cool. So I, I really appreciate that Disney gave us that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those uh, shows are a master class in storytelling, and you know, should be required viewing. <laughs> you know, across the country. Because even accomplished veteran filmmakers, once you enter Lucasfilm in the world of Star Wars and you sit with Filoni, you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, it really is, you know, like like sitting at the feet of a Jedi master, you know, and, and it's like breathing pure oxygen. And as a fan, you come away from it going, oh, thank God, you know, someone's minding the store and, and there's good stuff ahead. So let's take a step back to kind of get to know a little bit more about you. Um, you used to be a former Imagineer. Can you kind of describe what that is and how you came about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Imagineering is the creative design arm of the Walt Disney Company for all of their theme parks and resorts. So at Imagineering, we uh, we dream up, design, create, and build all of the rides, attractions, resort hotels, cruise ships, any and everything you know that falls under the Disney parks and resorts umbrella. And uh, over my career of 30-some years, uh, I pretty much evenly divided my time almost between live entertainment and attractions. You know, so I've done a lot in the realm of all of the live things that you experience in theme parks, whether it's a parade, a show, a fireworks spectacular, a haunted house at Universal, and attractions, which is any and every kind of ride you can think of, shops, restaurants, resort hotels, nightclubs, you know, the, the works. So I've been very, very fortunate in my life and uh, my career, which has been spread uh, between Disney and Universal. I've only worked for those two companies, you know, for my whole adult life. And I, I've really been uh, fortunate uh, with the opportunities that I've had. And just uh, in terms of what you guys cover, uh, I've done a great deal of work uh, with both Lucasfilm and Marvel. And that's been an incredible privilege because it's like, you know, you're, you're an adult and uh, suddenly this company is giving you life-size action figures you know, to play with you know, sort of in the world ultimate sandbox. What's it like for you creating content for these franchises or like you say, mythologies that you grew up loving? Like how is it as a fan adding to that mythology? It, well, it's uh, all I can say is that you're blessed. You're, you know, you're privileged because as a fan, you, you sort of have to, and Dave Filoni's talked about this too, on a certain level, you have to keep that in check when you're doing the work or your head would explode. You know, because like I pitched what would become Star Wars, Star Tours, The Adventures Continue to George Lucas at the ranch. And if I totally succumbed fandom at that point, I would be, you know, a blubbering mass of, of putty on the floor. 
you know, so at a certain point, and you know, you hear this from Dave Loney, you hear it from other filmmakers who had a chance to to be part of something they loved. You have to put that aside, and you have to just start to say, okay, this is great. I'm freaking out on the inside, but I have a job to do here. You know, and uh, and and there's also, I'm, I'm not going to lie, there's a, a great deal of of uh, satisfaction that comes from that. You know, that that you yourself have come to a place in your life where. Uh, you get to even touch these things, even on a tangential level. You know, it, it, it's meant the world to me. And, and nothing means more to me than going to a Disney park or a Universal park and, and seeing something that I had a hand in that is based on these wonderful films that I grew up with. So when Disney purchased Marvel and Star Wars, what was your reaction to both of them? Were you more excited over one or the other? or It was completely blown away with the Lucas acquisition simply because, like I said, I was, a, you know, kind of a Lucasburg kid, you know, raised on the films of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. But having said that, you know, I was also very much a Marvel kid, you know, and uh, it loved all of the characters uh, in the Marvel universe. And um, I think more than anything, uh, you know, Marvel had had some financial issues in the 90s and was flirting with bankruptcy and there was all sorts of instability. So with Marvel, you were just like, oh, thank God. The, the, the whole company, all of those characters are in good, stable hands and we don't have to worry about that for the future. There was something similar with the Lucasfilm acquisition where you felt, okay, now, you know, as a fan, I don't need to worry about what's going to happen in 20 years when George might not be around and, uh, you know, are, are his kids going to be interested in carrying on that business? So Disney really represented a very stable home and a very promising future uh, for both of those things. But I think in particular Lucasfilm, since it was a privately held company. You, you have the experience of creating these riots, creating these attractions um, for Star Wars and all, and, you know, Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, one of the things that I'm wondering is, why do you think Disney spent so much time doing Star Wars and it's taking them such a long time to get Marvel stuff out there? Well, I think at, at the moment, things are in flux, obviously, because of the, the pandemic. Everything is sort of uh, up in the air. But in both cases, uh, you have an instance of top corporate management at Disney wanting to leave these corporate cultures in the hands in, in which they came in. So that means Kevin Feige on the Marvel side and Kathy Kennedy on the Lucas side, who had been personally selected you know, by George to run the company before the Disney acquisition. So what, what I experienced while I was there and what I'm observing now as an outsider is that they definitely want to take the thing, take the time to get these things right. Now, in the case of Star Wars, you know, uh, I'm not going to lie. There's been some controversy with Solo and Rise of Skywalker. I happen to love both of those movies, uh, even if I didn't necessarily agree with some of the choices in Rise of Skywalker. I still felt it was a really satisfying capper, you know, to a nine-film story. And uh, you know, I, I can't fathom what that pressure must have been like. And I'm a huge fan of Solo, and can't wait to spend more time with those characters, whether it's on himself or Lando or uh, Kira, any of those characters, I think they deserve to come back. But what you're seeing now in the wake of the public reaction is 
some sort of careful recalibration of what Star Wars is going to be in the future. And I think that's because everyone at Disney, from Bob Iger on down, you know, to Bob Chapek, the new CEO, Kathy on the Lucas side, Kevin on the Marvel side, they know uh, what they are stewards of, and they know how valuable it, it is. And, and in the case of, you know, Kevin Feige is a perfect example. No one loves this stuff more than that guy. These characters, this world, they all take that very seriously. So I don't care what kind of crap you hear in the media, specifically regarding Kathy and on the Lucasfilm side, these people take this stuff very seriously. Believe it or not, they love it as much as the most diehard fan, and they want it to do right by not just the fans, but by the original creators, whether it's Stan, George, you know, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, whoever. Um, they want to do right by the characters and the world that's been established. And that was something that, uh, that I felt at Imagineering, and even with some of the properties I worked with at Universal. You are a steward of a world that has been established and created created by others over decades with beloved characters, settings, story points, whatever. And it's your responsibility to carry that on into the future and, and make sure that it stays as loved as it's been. On that kind of note, you mentioned being a steward of kind of this beloved material. You've written on a lot of rides that are very iconic. I was yeah. wondering on your thoughts for another iconic ride, Tower of Terror, which has now moved to more of a Guardians of the Galaxy ride. Because um, I know Disney, Walt Disney kind of originally thinks of Disney World as a sandbox that's constantly recreated, but also that everyone has this deep love and respect for the iconic old rides. How do you feel about that change for the Tower of Terror to more of Guardians of the Galaxy? Uh, in terms of Tower of the Tower of Terror going into Guardians, uh, at Disney California Adventure, it absolutely works. It works much better than it has a right to and much better than any of us, I think, thought it might because it's just pure fun. And I think the main reason for that is because uh, some compromises and adjustments had already been made to the Tower of Terror when it was sort of reimagined for California Adventure versus the original uh, here in Florida at Disney's Hollywood Studios. So I think you could get away with that a little bit more um, because uh, adjustments had already been made. And the core experience, which is the thrill, you know, of, a, of an up and down, you know, sort of gravity ride, was preserved. And I think it's a testament to the strength of Guardians of, Ga uh, Guardians of the Galaxy as a story. And those actors, those characters, those performers, that music, it preserves everything that's, that was wonderful and that people loved about Tower of Terror, and it added to it. Uh, I think the story would have been different if they had tried to adapt the one here in Florida, because uh, I think the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror at Disney's Hollywood Studios is a near-perfect attraction. Uh, but at California Adventure, they were able to get away with it and create something new and arguably better. And it also, you know, lays the foundation for the Avengers Campus, which I, you know, I think is destined to be a home run. So let's talk about some of the of your creations. Where you know we call this kind of the uh, the fastball, the speedball, the quick round. Um, you know, you you got Star Tours, Star Weekends, Haunted Mansion. Captain Jack Sparrow, Raiders of the Lost Ark. These are just, I'm just you know, Jurassic Park ride. You got any cool, fun anecdotes that you want to share when creating these, you know, whichever one sticks out to you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned Jack Sparrow. Uh, we did an attraction that, in, in the grand scheme of things, was fairly short-lived, but it was called The Legend of Captain Jack Sparrow at Disney's Hollywood Studios, and it was sort of a, an exercise in projection mapping effects and a lot of uh, state-of-the-art media projection uh, that ultimately found its way into uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which recently opened at Hollywood Studios. Um, but The Legend of Captain Jack Sparrow was sort of a play test for a lot of things that have come since. But for me personally, it gave me a chance to both write for and direct Johnny Depp as, as Captain Jack. And that, as you might imagine, was completely mind-blowing because, again, you're taking this beloved creation from film and adapting it to the, to the theme park world, and you're working with the very person who created the character. And uh, what I found was that uh, even though he, he was and is one of the biggest stars on the planet, at heart, Johnny is, is an actor like any other actor who's looking to tell a good story and to do right by the, the material. So he would, you know, we would shoot a tape, for example, and then he would look at us like, oh, was that okay? You know, like, what would you do? What, what, what should I try? And there were moments where we would be sort of behind the scenes talking about the next take. And, you know, we mentioned earlier, what, what's it like to be a fan of this stuff and, and to not completely lose your mind? Those were moments where I would take a mental snapshot and say to myself, you are sitting here talking with Johnny Depp about material you wrote for his character. This is amazing. And uh, it could not have been a, a greater experience because he's incredibly gracious and kind-hearted and uh and respectful of the material and also the people that generate the material. And uh, I, I couldn't ask for a better experience. And then on Star Wars, of course, you know, you're going to Skywalker Ranch to meet with the maker to pitch a Star Wars anything. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's a movie, a TV show, or an attraction. It's Star Wars and you're talking to the source. And it was the same thing. I, I had to kind of keep it together as a professional storyteller. So I'm pitching the material as best I can and, and looking for feedback. Um, but inside, you're just appreciating the, the fact that you're there at the ranch with somebody who is literally partially responsible for your professional life. And uh, th there's really, I, I can't tell you how gratifying that is. Or, you know, in, on the Marvel side, just to have a chance to play in that sandbox with those characters because you know, I got to work on a lot of the earliest interactive meet and greet experiences at Disneyland for Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America. And just to, to be there sort of on the front lines as these characters in a major way finally made their way from the, the movie screens and the pages of a comic book into a theme park. And uh, you know to, to be partnered with Marvel Studios and to spend time with Kevin Feige, I, I just, it's like breathing pure oxygen. And, you know, I mean, just look at Marvel's track record. It, it speaks for itself. They don't need any help from anybody else. But <laughs> to, you know, to get the call to, to play with them uh, in the theme park realm was just uh, unbelievable. How do you translate something that's inherently, well, move from comic book to big screen to then theme park? I imagine that the experience and the process of writing has to be immensely different for theme park versus like your experience with writing a book or say for a TV show or for a movie. How do you translate it from these different portions of media? 
it's interesting because you, you always have to be mindful of whatever media medium you're working in. So, for example, in the early part of my career, when I was uh, predominantly working in live entertainment, occasionally my executive management would say, oh, this moment you have here would be great for a movie or a TV show because it's small or it's dependent upon a facial, a facial expression. But we're putting on a live show in an arena that sits 2,500, that seats 2,500 people. So you have to adjust the storytelling for that medium. So for me, it's been interesting to modulate the storytelling from something that's media-based to a piece of live entertainment to an attraction like Star Tours, which is inherently media-based, but it's also unfolding in the real world. You know, you're not watching it at home. You're in a star theater moving around and feeling it. So uh, for me, that's been part of the fun is, is uh, varying my approach to the storytelling based on whatever that end experience was going to be. So for example, on Star Tours, I knew that unlike someone sitting in an arena watching a live show, they could feel it when Darth Vader puts up his hand and grabs the star speeder and there's sort of a tug of war, you know, between Creepio as the pilot and Vader trying to keep the star speeder in the hangar. Um, and, and that was really part of the fun, uh, depending on what medium you're working in. You know, you would sort of take stock of the tools that were available to you and use all of them. But at the end of the day, you're still creating a storytelling experience, an emotional experience for the audience. It's just how it's delivered that's different. Is there a particular attraction that you're most proud of or fond of? Um, honestly, I think uh, it's not open yet, but uh, the e-ticket attraction that will sort of anchor Jurassic World at Universal Studios Beijing, I'm really incredibly proud of. Um, it's a different franchise, obviously, but uh, to me, it's my Indiana Jones adventure in that it's a very visceral, physical experience that for perhaps the first time will truly make the audience feel what it's like to be in a Jurassic film and to actually be stalked, pursued, and assaulted <laughs> by these dinosaurs. You know, and then Star Tours is, is a huge, huge thing for me because, again, I got to play with something that is completely beloved to me and pitch it to and work with George Lucas. So that was huge. And then there, I spent a year working on um, a Star Wars land that ultimately gave way to Galaxy's Edge. But a lot of the work that I did uh, for a Star Wars land that was never uh, built the way that we uh, originally thought it might be, uh, some of my finest work, I think, was done there too. And again, to have the chance to work with those worlds, those planets, those characters, you know, it was, it was just a dream come true. So as sort of a, a middle-aged guy, Generation X, looking back on his childhood, the fact that I got to have this much to do with Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Marvel, and Jurassic Park and Jurassic World is, is, is really just sort of humbling, you know, and, and mind-blowing. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about some of the books you've written and been a part of. Uh, to start out, I'd like to hear a little bit about your Art of the Avengers book. Did you have any chances to interact with Kevin Feige or the cast and see a little bit of that process in the movie? How did that book come about? That's a really funny story in that, you know, you will not find a bigger Disney fan or Disney nerd than Kevin Feige. <laughs> and he's very open about it. 
So, uh, you know, shortly after the, the Disney acquisition of Marvel, uh, I was assigned to write sort of a Marvel 101 story for D23 magazine, you know, which is the in-house Disney fan club. And uh, they basically said, you know, we've uh, a lot of Disney fans aren't necessarily Marvel fans. So we want you to, to write kind of the 101 course on Marvel so that Disney fans can be introduced to this world, these characters, everything that Stan Lee and all of his collaborators created. So uh, having grown up a Marvel fan, you know, I was already halfway there, but I thought, okay, this is great. So Kevin Feige, as you might imagine, as head of Marvel Studios was, you know, number one on my interview list. So I will never forget that conference call. I happened to be working in Glendale, you know, at the worldwide headquarters of Imagineering uh, the day that that call was scheduled. You know, so I'm sitting in, a, in an executive office uh, on a speaker phone. And, you know, you, you talk to, to the typical publicist who's like, okay, hold the line for Kevin Feige. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, because even then, you know, we already had Iron Man 1 and 2. The Avengers was uh, in production or had just gone into production. So you already knew this was amazing things were coming. So there's that moment where, where I'm just holding on the line. And then you hear Kevin Feige in that sort of unmistakable voice, like Jason Sorrell. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I own the Haunted Mansion from the Magic Kingdom to the movies. I own Pirates of the Caribbean from the Magic Kingdom to the movies. I own the Disney Mountains, Imagineering at its peak. And I'm like, oh, uh, uh. And he goes, I am a fan. And I said, well, um, I'm certainly a fan of yours. And then at that moment, the publicist gets back on the line and said, obviously, you don't need me. I'm going to jump off. So for a publicist to leave an interview, you know that that they feel safe. That's so, incredible. Yeah, huge, huge fan. Uh, we had an amazing hour-long conversation about his take on Marvel and everything Marvel Studios was going to be doing. And then almost as an afterthought, at the end, I said, I, jokingly, I said, hey, if you need somebody to write the making of the Avengers, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And he goes, I will keep that in mind. I will keep that in mind. And you're like, oh, yeah, Mr. Hollywood, he's going to keep it in mind. Literally two weeks later, I get a phone call from a New York area code that I did not recognize. And I, I'm like, hello, this is Jason. And this, this guy goes, yeah, this is Jeff Youngquist. I'm an editor at Marvel. And I'm like, yeah? And he goes, yeah, I got a call from Kevin Feige. And he said, you're going to be writing The Art of the Avengers for us. I went, really? And I said, well, I, I guess I'm writing The Art of the Avengers for you. You can't say no to that. <laughs> no, you can't. It's like Kevin Feige said, you know, it's kind of like Marlon Brando in The Godfather <laughs> called you and said, you're doing this. Uh, and that's really how it came about because he was a Disney fan who enjoyed my previous work and he wanted me to sort of bring that love and thoroughness to a Marvel project. And then literally weeks later, I'm on the streets of Cleveland, where I'm from, by the way, <laughs> you know, watching you know, Thor and Captain America, you know, fighting the Shatari aliens. That was just mind boggling, you know, to, to just sit there going, I'm in my hometown with my wife, my mother, and, you know, there's Joss Whedon, there's Kevin Feige, there's Chris Hemsworth and Chris Evans. It was just completely surreal. Like, I, I can't even describe what that was like. 
I always wonder with those kind of large productions and large sets. Well, I imagine they had to do it in Cleveland because there's no chance in hell they could get it done in New York. And then how do they keep people from just crowding like crazy around this obviously Avengers crazy set? Well, it's funny because the crowd control is actually, it seems counterintuitive, but it's actually one of the easier things because they have police, they have barricades, everything is secure in that way. But you hit the nail on the head. You're not going to go shut down midtown Manhattan for the better part of a month. Now, they did go shoot in Manhattan, and I, I was fortunate enough to be on that set as well. But the reason they went to Cleveland was because, it, you know, it's it's cheaper, it's more accessible. They're willing to give you a lot more in terms of shutting down big chunks of the city in order to do this. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny you mention that because uh, a month or two later, uh, I went to Manhattan or to New York. Uh, to watch them film parts of the the climax of, of the movie. And uh, I was there on the day that they shot the scene in Central Park where Thor and Loki return to Asgard. And I'll never forget, my wife and I walk up to the set, we're at the police barricade, and uh, you know that's where they kind of let us in. And uh, to your point, this sort of quintessential New Yorker comes up to the, to the guy running the, the barricade and said, yeah, so what are they filming in there? And he just goes, a commercial. And they're like, oh, yeah, commercial for what? And he goes, mayonnaise. <laughs> Very expensive mayonnaise. <laughs> and, you know, like to him, he's winking at me. You know, the, the person he was talking to said, okay, great, it's mayonnaise. Uh, but I found out that when they're shooting something with big stars or something they want to keep secret, they always say it's a mayonnaise commercial, which I thought was endlessly amusing. And the fact that this kind of hardened New York, you know, film guy is just like, Mayonnaise. Very, very, very expensive mayonnaise. <laughs> so if we hear that, like, somebody said, oh, it's just mayonnaise, stick around because you're going to see some mayonnaise. big star. Believe me, you want to be there. Yeah. So sneak in, overpower the person, whatever you got to do, but something cool is happening, I promise. You see explosions nearby, you're like, this is the most badass mayonnaise commercial I've ever seen. Oh, yeah, it's unbelievable, like, especially uh, the stuff they shot in Cleveland, because that, uh, that was when they shot the, the moment when Thor you know, wields the hammer and sends a, a taxi cab flipping through the air. I got to watch all that. And like, again, you're sitting there going, I grew up here. I went Christmas shopping here with my parents, you know, and there's Thor, you know, there's Cap. You know, it was just it was it was so surreal. I can't even tell you, but it was mayonnaise. But it was it was just mayonnaise, you know. But on some of the other books you talked about, um, you probably get this question so much that it could be a little exhausting to answer. But you wrote the book on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. How do you feel about the changes to the ride? Um, some for more um, politically correct and sensibility reasons, some for more movie reasons. On both ends of the spectrum, how do you feel about those changes? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I wrote books on both the uh... Uh, Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean. And the short answer as to why was because I wanted to read them. And back then they didn't exist. You know, so you had to go and do it. Um, so because of that, I got a front row seat with the Pirates of the Caribbean films and also uh, some of the changes that they made to the attraction. And regarding that, I, I honestly, it's going to sound like a political answer, but it's, it's the truth. I see both sides. You know, um, there was a lot of controversy when at Disney, we added Captain Jack and some of the film elements to the attraction. And then surprisingly, 
once we did it, the, uh, the audience accepted it very readily. And I think the, there's a very simple reason for that in that it was additive. Uh, the producer of those enhancements, uh, a longtime Imagineer named Kathy Rogers said, we're being very careful to be additive. We're adding things. We're not changing things per se. We're just adding film elements to the attraction that you already know and love. And sure enough, that was the right approach. That was the secret sauce because the audience embraced it and loved it. Now, some of the other things, uh, you know, back in the 90s, uh, we adjusted the scene where the pirates were chasing women, you know, because of changing, you know, social considerations and, and the political climate. And it's interesting because when you consider what pirates are and what they do, we pillage, we, pu we plunder, we rifle and loot. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's all awful behavior. And to be totally honest, going even back to the 60s when Walt was alive, the writer for the attraction, Exitensio, who's a Disney legend, one of the master Imagineers, he told me that when they mocked up the auction scene, you know, where they're auctioning off women, even Walt was sitting there going, well, this is okay, right, guys? I mean, this is okay, you know? <laughs> he, almost, he was looking for approval. So that was in the mid-1960s. So obviously... The political climate changes, uh, the sort of, and it sounds pretentious, but the mores of our culture change. So I think that some of those elements of the attraction sort of had to change with it. Um, as a fan, yeah, I'm a little dismayed to see that the auction scene was changed, you know, almost beyond recognition because you're losing the the vocal performance of Paul Freese as the auctioneer. Uh, you're losing uh, some of that classic dialogue and some of that interplay with the redhead and the pirates across the, the waterway. But I also get it, you know, because if you were to do Pirates of the Caribbean today, you would never include that scene in its original form. So I get the evolution. I'm supportive of it from, from many, if not most, standpoints. But as a fan, uh, but more to the point, as someone who loves the original work, you know, you're kind of like, oh, we're losing all these things. But, you know, they're going to live on in your memory. They live on on YouTube. They live on in um, soundtracks that we all have. Um, but but it's a perfect example of how Disneyland is a living thing. And by extension, the Disney parks are a living thing that will continue to evolve and change. And I imagine it has to be a bit of a conundrum for the creators because you have the historical reality of pirates as... Um, objectively terrible human beings, and then also the fantasized reality of, I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean, the movies are probably the darkest portrayal. Before that, you yeah. even had more of like a Captain Hook or the Errol Flynn uh, swashbuckler type. It almost seems kind of innocent, it's romanticized, but they're horrible people. Pirates yeah. are horrible people. You know, so then you have the ride, the attraction, and then the film series that sort of make them beloved figures, but that's completely distorting reality. So, uh, you know, you get that. Um, and uh, like I said, if, if Walt was questioning it you, back in the day, you know that there's some validity there. So I get it. And I think the audience gets it. Uh, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's a masterwork of themed entertainment. Nothing will ever change that. But, um, you know, it's funny because whenever I see somebody you know, complaining about a change at a Disney park and saying things like, you know, Walt Disney would never have stood for this. That's where you're a hundred percent wrong because Walt would have been the first person to change something, close it, shut it down, tear it down, put up something new. 
that was what he meant when he said Disneyland will never be completed. You know, and he was, I mean, he was changing things and ripping things out in the first four years of, of the park. You know, so I've, I've never really understood that hard line of some of the Disney purists because you're, they're saying something that is really antithetical to what Walt believed and wanted for the parks. You know, you talk about how fans are, you know, so adamant about keeping the parks the, the way they are and like how much love they have for it. But I'm curious, like everyone has, you know, their special like love for a different part of Disney. What is your favorite, you know, Disney park? Like what's that special thing like that you love going to and are experiencing there? Disneyland will always be my ultimate laughing place. And uh, partially it's because I grew up with Walt Disney World on the East Coast and the majority of my professional life was spent working with Walt Disney World. So Disneyland, to a large extent, was sort of kept pure as a guest experience for me. And I think it has something to do with the relatively smaller size, the quaintness, the intimacy of that part, the fact that, you know, you know intellectually that that's where Walt walked and that was his baby. Um, and then also the fact that it has, uh, I think, the quintessential versions of certain attractions, like the Haunted Mansion, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, to this day, that is my favorite place on the planet, and nothing can make me feel like Disneyland does. I proposed to my wife there, you know, in front of uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle, uh, you know, after a Haunted Mansion event, you know, so all of these things sort of came together Um but my heart will always be in Anaheim at Disneyland. That's super cool. I proposed to my wife in front of the Magic Kingdom Castle and Disney World. So there you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> you get a lot of extra production value when you go to one of these places. Now, I have to ask personally, because I'll admit, I had never gone to any of the Disneyland or Disney Worlds. And my wife was actually planning on taking me for the first time this year, you know, before the world went to hell. Um, <laughs> so how, what would you recommend then for kind of the main things you have to see if you've never been to Disney? Well, if you're going to start off with Walt Disney World, I mean, that's, that's a... <laughs> You're, you're probably biting off more than you can chew. Mm. Um, but obviously, you want to go to the Magic Kingdom where you're going to get uh, versions of attractions that, that date back to the Walt era. But then, of course, as a Star Wars fan, you, you're going to have to go to Hollywood Studios to see Galaxy's Edge. And then depending on when your trip is, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy are coming to Epcot. Uh, one of my best friends in the world is uh, a crea the creative director for that attraction. And it's going to be just spectacular uh, and then of course at animal kingdom you have some of the most amazing environments imaginary has ever created along with uh, a, a great film property in avatar so you, you're going to want at least one full day in every park uh in each of the four parks and that's probably not going to be enough uh but you're definitely going to there's something for everybody in every park and especially as sort of a genre fan, you can't not go to, to any one of the of the Walt Disney World parks. I know that doesn't help, and I know it's very expensive, but that's what you have to do. Yeah, you just have to see all of it. And I don't want to hear otherwise. All right, so you made the transition from Imagineer to Universal, becoming a, the creative director. Can you kind of describe that process and, uh, that and the role that you're in right now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I left uh, Walt Disney Imagineering for Universal uh, predominantly because I had the opportunity to sort of graduate from a writing role into a creative director role, which is really sort of the ultimate goal, you know, for somebody in, in my field, because you get to, uh, you have a chance to play with everything. 
So in the years that I spent with Universal as a creative director, it's kind of like being uh, a director of a film where you're sort of the cheerleader and vision keeper for the whole concept and get to take something from the, that one first spark of an idea to opening day. And uh, my first project that I did for Universal was the ride uh, called Race Through New York starring Jimmy Fallon, which kind of brings The Tonight Show to life in a thrill ride, which I don't think the world saw coming. I certainly didn't see it coming. Uh, and then uh, most of my time there was spent as the creative director for Universal Studios Beijing and Universal's Epic Universe, uh, a project that is uh, about to go on a, a little bit of a pause you know, because of the conditions in the world. But uh, I really got, got a chance to sort of play on the biggest possible playing field in the themed entertainment industry. And that's that was a, a whole lot of fun. So um, can you, I know that this, probably a long answer that you um you don't necessarily have to give but can you kind of explain like the the pitching process and the writing process of making a show or a ride yeah you know uh, using the jimmy fallon uh ride is is probably a great example because you know when i took the universal job the very first phone call i had i thought oh my gosh what are they going to tell me is it is it harry potter is it king kong is it the universal monsters what's it going to be you know and then i get on the phone and they're like jimmy fallon and i said what about him? <laughs> He's getting his own thrill ride and we need you to figure it out. And my first thought was, oh my God, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> but then the second thought was, well, this is a, a, a tremendous creative challenge trying to figure out how to take a personality, basically, uh, or a TV show like The Tonight Show, a late night talk show, and turn it into a ride. And uh, basically, I followed the same uh, protocol that I would for anything else in themed entertainment, which is, okay, if I'm working on something based on this, whether it's Star Wars, Indiana Jones, uh, Marvel, or Jimmy Fallon, what would the audience expect to see in that experience? So for Jimmy Fallon, you have to look at The Tonight Show, and immediately you're like, okay, there's hashtag the panda there's the ragtime gals you know the barbershop quartet singing you know hip-hop music uh there's new york there's studio 6b and rockefeller center and ultimately i found the answer in the wacky races that jimmy would take part in with all of his celebrity guests like the hemsworth brothers and uh and uh, hugh jackman uh and that was ultimately how we decided to make the uh, attraction here in florida a race because it came right out of the show and that, for me, that's been the great through line of themed entertainment. What would people want and expect from whatever it is you're giving them? And then the trick is to give them what they expect, but in a way that they don't expect, because that's where the fun and the surprise is. So is there anything that you're, uh, you're, you're currently working on or you want to promote? Well, I, was, uh, <laughs> I, I recently was laid off because of the pandemic. Um, so I'm actually entering kind of an exciting new phase of my career uh, in that I'm well, at the moment working for multiple companies uh, doing multiple projects, which is something I've never done before. And it's actually, uh, I thought it was going to be terrifying, but it's turning out to be pretty exciting. But the big thing for me is Universal Studios Beijing, which will be opening in China in uh, probably early to mid 2021. Uh, from from everything I hear, it's still very much on schedule. And that was the first time that I got to be a creative director at the park level and sort of put into practice everything that I had learned over 25 years of being in the business. 
and uh, you know, you, you you talk about sort of getting to to be that inner fanboy. You know, I got to work with Jurassic World and Transformers and um, Blue Panda from DreamWorks and all of these amazing properties. Uh, and uh, I got to lead the creation of rides and attractions. Uh, you know, I got to do it all. And uh, that will be opening to the world uh, in the next uh, six or nine months. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. And I'm going to be working on a new Pirates of the Caribbean book for Theme Park Press that will also come out next year. It's called Pirates of the Caribbean, Imagineering a Disney Classic. So uh, I'll be getting the pirate story back out there for people once again. That's super cool. It sounds like I need to, when the whole pandemic ends, buy a plane ticket and go to Beijing to experience this uh, Jurassic World ride. No, Jurassic World will not disappoint. And uh, and the Transformers land is uh, is going to be pretty mind-blowing. So I, I, I cannot wait for, for people to, to be able to see it and experience it. So when we end out our interviews, we like to ask this uh, certain question because, uh, um, you know, we, we're interviewing people with a lot of experience and they can give a uh, um, hopefully someone may be interested in the position, uh, some, some ways that they can avoid some pitfalls. So what has been your greatest failure and how have you learned from that? My greatest failure was actually, uh, I would say, an independent film I made uh, just about 20 years ago called Characters. It was sort of meant to be clerks in a theme park. And uh, it didn't quite do what I wanted it to do for me or for anyone else who was involved with it, which, which was sort of launch us you know, into film careers. But what it taught me was that you've got to be true to yourself. Uh, I was too busy trying to make clerks in a theme park, so to speak. I was too busy trying to be Kevin Smith and not trying hard enough to be myself. Uh, and, and, uh, and because I also had a full-time career in the themed entertainment industry, I don't think I was ultimately able to devote the time and energy that something like a feature film demanded so uh, even though it didn't quite do what I wanted it to do, it was also a success in that my friends and I made a movie and people saw it. People paid to see it. And we shot uh, in the park at Universal Orlando. We shot on the sound stages at Universal Studios Florida. So it was an amazing learning experience. It was my film school, uh, even though it ultimately uh, failed to do what I wanted it to do. Uh, it was still very much a learning experience and, and something that uh, really positioned me better for the future. Which is good that you learned from kind of those independent projects too. And we just love talking with people about some things that maybe didn't go well in an otherwise illustrious career because it helps those who... Because Imagineering is something that a lot of people aspire to. It's nice to see having people learn from these different failures or different struggles so that even though you're pursuing something that's really seeming glorious, you know, there's other tough things along the way. Well, yeah, I mean, cause like, like, uh, like most things, success and failure are in the eyes of the beholder. So on one level, you know, you mentioned Imagineering and, and themed entertainment where I was, was and am operating at the highest levels. But then when I tried my hand at film, which was something that also has meant the world to me throughout my life, uh, it didn't do what I wanted it to do for some of the reasons I just mentioned. Um, but that's not to say that it didn't have benefits and that it didn't teach me something. So whether you succeed or fail, you're always going to learn something and you're always going to derive something valuable out of that experience, uh, even if it doesn't feel that way at the time. So Jason, where can some of our listeners find out more about you, find out more about what you're working on and maybe find some of the books you've written? 
Uh, well, if you uh, uh, type my name into Amazon, you know, all of the books will come up, even the ones that are out of print. You know, you can find them on Amazon Marketplace or eBay or, or other places. Uh, and then basically, if you just uh, if you Google me, I think some videos come up of talks that I've given and things like that. If you want to learn a little bit more about themed entertainment, some of that stuff is available out there. But the books are certainly out there and uh, and they really capture a lot of the philosophy of, of what themed entertainment is and should be, you know, sort of going all the way back to Walt himself. Yeah, so you guys can get in touch with Jason on Twitter or simply finding him on Amazon. You can see a lot of his books on there. Like always, you can get in touch with us at Pod Wars Podcast on Twitter. Send your send your words of affirmation to us through a nice five-star review. And as always, everyone, have a great week. <laughs>